You're listening to At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast. I'm Alex Rover, head of U.S. interest rate strategy at J.P. Morgan. U.S. interest rate markets have been quite volatile lately, uh, in part looking ahead to next week's FOMC meeting on May the 4th. The expectations in the market have been shaped both by global events and shifting views of, of what inflation might do over the coming months. Next week on May 4th, we also have uh, the Treasury refunding, where we'll learn more from the Treasury about how it intends to finance itself in the coming months. With everything going on, it seemed like a good time to get together a group of, of J.P. Morgan experts to discuss the developments in this space. So joining me today are Mike Ferroli, our chief U.S. economist, Jay Barry, our head of U.S. government security strategy, as well as Phoebe White, our lead inflation strategist. So let's turn to Mike first. So Mike, last week, Chair Powell mentioned that a 50 basis point hike is on the table for May and suggested that there are probably additional 50 basis point hikes potentially warranted. Um, I guess this seems like he's ratifying the notion of, of 50s, at least over the next two FOMC meetings. Um, after that, I guess several of his Fed colleagues have made similar comments, and, and I guess the, the markets are wondering if, if we are indeed going to get a more aggressive approach. How does that fit with your view of things, and where do you think we see Fed funds at the end of the year? Yeah, I think that fits broadly with our big picture expectations for policy, which we're looking for a 50 basis point hike next week at the May FOMC meeting, which I think now seems pretty clearly communicated. We also have another 50 the June meeting, followed by uh, four more 25 basis point hikes after that, which would get uh, the funds rate by year end to around uh, two and a quarter to two and a half percent, which is pretty much in uh, in the range of neutral uh, or the median FOMC participants estimate of neutral, and which is pretty close to where we would uh, put that um, figure as well. I would say that uh, that's broadly consistent with some Fed speakers who have said they want to be by uh, near neutral by year end. Uh, other FOMC speakers have suggested uh, expeditiously getting back to neutral, which uh, may uh, uh, may mean uh, 450 basis point rate hikes, which would get us to that neutral range by September. So uh, I, uh, I think right now it kind of seems like that's where the range of outcomes is, is we get to neutral by September, or we get to neutral by December. Uh, but that's probably how we're seeing, uh, seeing things. And I think that, you know, big picture is kind of reflected in some of the uh, latest FOMC speaker uh, developments. So what's the advantage to, to the Fed for going, say, 50 basis points a clip over several meetings as opposed to maybe trying to do something larger? Or is there a disadvantage to maybe going larger faster? Uh, so certainly 75 basis points has been uh, mooted by a number of uh, the more uh, lively hawkish speakers recently, uh, to which there seemed to be some pushback by um, some of the more uh, centrist uh, FMC. Uh, members. Uh, and I think their case, one is that, first of all, 50 may have just been socialized, to use Chair Powell's terms. In other words, that may have been uh, sort of tacitly agreed upon, uh, perhaps intermeeting uh, conference calls. Uh, uh, 75 uh, could, you know, and I think those who argue for 75 is just that uh, if you want to get to neutral expeditiously, 75 does it quicker than uh, than 50. Uh, obviously, it carries uh, risks of um, overshooting. Uh, if you're going to go 75 a meeting, 
uh, rather than 50 meeting, just as 50 meeting increases the risk of overshooting more than 25 a meeting, uh, even more so to 75, of course, with the benefit of getting, getting there quicker. So, you know, it's a cost benefit trade-off. I think most people on the committee, it sounds like are leaning toward 50 as a better uh, cost benefit um, than 75. Uh, again, each has their merits, but it seems, sounds like the committee um, broadly is, is leaning towards uh, 50. And one of the conversations we seem to have with a lot of investors recently have been sort of around persistence of inflation. You know, what aspects are persistent? What aspects might stick around longer? And I know that has to figure into the, yeah, I've heard you talk about that sort of fitting into the Fed's, the Fed's calculus here. You know, last week, for instance, you guys talked about, you know, some of the impacts we're seeing from higher rates already, uh, you know, food price inflation, higher interest rates on debt payments. Um, how, how do you feel about sort of the inflation narrative as it evolves? Yeah, you know, I would really say since um, really since around the fourth quarter of last year, the inflation readings uh, have featured uh strengthen some of the, the components that traditionally have been more persistent. So um, things like rents, I think would probably be the first one there, which, uh, you know, unlike things like used cars or apparel, which jump around from month to month, once higher rental inflation gets in train, uh, it's usually uh, difficult uh, to slow it. Um, and that, I think, is an important aspect of why we in the Fed have probably turned more hawkish over the past six months, is that uh, with more persistent inflation, uh, you probably will need you know, restrictive policy to, uh, to slow that inflation down. Had it been simply the, the more um, fleeting price increases, perhaps you wouldn't need to see such a uh, uh, tightening of policy. But, uh, and that can be measured in a variety of ways, the persistence. Um, uh, you can look at the Atlanta Fed uh, sticky price. We've also, my colleague Peter McRory has developed a measure of uh, inflation persistence. And that has picked up quite a bit lately. And that's, uh, you know, I think what's going to need tighter financial conditions to really ring out uh, that type of inflation. And I guess we get some inflation data, you know, coming up later this week, even so from PCE, ECI, anything there you're watching for in particular? Yeah, ECI will be interesting. Um, arguably, the, the third quarter ECI was um, uh, what really prompted Powell's pivot in November, uh, November, December of last year, at least uh, according to his recollection of events. So, um so that will be interesting to watch. Uh, we're looking for that to be up uh, a percent, which would take the year ago, I think, to 4.1%. Um, PCE, I think, is a little less of a, might be a little less interesting just because we have so many of the inputs already from the CPI report. But we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that Friday ECI number. And before we go, I, I, I want to circle back to um, another, another thing we're anticipating from the meeting is you know, more discussion of sort of the balance sheet. Um, you know, I guess the, our view is they'll officially announce the runoff next week, but we probably actually don't really get runoff until June, I suppose. Um, is there anything once the runoff starts that, you know, might, might lead them to stop it or that once that happens, that's kind of on cruise control. And then I guess we've gotten a lot of questions about sort of why 35 on the mortgage-backed securities, would they actually consider selling those or, or you know, are they had too big a loss to do that? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, um, in terms of our things on cruise control, I don't, you know, at least initially, I think their hope is that things are on cruise control and that they, uh, I think their expectation is that they are going to set these parameters, uh, on the monthly caps on how quick we get to the caps and then, uh, and then just not disturb it for the rest of the, uh, the cycle. Uh, that said, I think if things are not, um, playing out in line with expectations that they could, they could adjust some of those, uh, some of those parameters if need be. And I think one we've, um, pointed to is the fact that they, uh, have a slower runoff of bills and we were, uh, treasury bills that we had anticipated. And, uh, if that leads to, um, unusual developments in markets, I think, uh, that that, uh, would adjust, uh, that aspect or other aspects of balance sheet policy. Um, as need be. Uh, on the 35 cap for mortgages, we were a little surprised, I mean, modestly surprised. We were looking for 30 in part because of the reason uh, you mentioned or alluded to, which is that uh, it's really, you know, neither are really going to be binding. Why would you go, why not just say, you know, 100 on mortgages for that matter? Um, I don't think this was necessarily meant as a signal on mortgages, on mortgage sales. Uh, certainly, the signal on mortgage sales seemed to be a little more direct, which is that, um, you know, there was a general sense in the committee that it might be appropriate to consider selling mortgages after, um, you know, uh, rate policy normalization is well underway. Um, so that may be an issue for next year. Uh, um, but, you know, I'm not 100% convinced that that's a done deal. Um, but regardless of the, the prospects, I don't I don't think the 35 cap was meant to be some kind of signal about uh, mortgage sales. Thanks, Mike. So we're going to turn now to Jay Barry and talk a little bit about what's been happening in the treasury market. And actually, a lot's been going on in the treasury market, Jay. I mean, we've seen yields on a pretty wild ride this past month. I think last week we saw 10s edging closer to 3%, only to give back some ground uh, earlier earlier to, on Monday. Uh, meanwhile, we'd seen sort of twos, 10s peak near 40 basis points two weeks ago before uh, I guess the socialization of multiple 50 basis point hikes hit the market and sort of you know, pushed up short, short rate expectations. Um, what's happened and, and what are you watching out for uh, next out of the treasury market? Sure, Alex. So I, I think the first thing that happened, and Mike talked about it just a few minutes ago, was that the market was sort of setting the bounds on how quickly the Fed might get the funds rate back to neutral. So over the course of the last few weeks, by the end of last week, markets were pricing in more than multiple, more than 350 basis point consecutive moves to the point where we were sort of pricing in a neutral Fed funds rate by the September meeting. Whereas, you know, as Mike talked about, his forecast was that it would happen sort of by the December meeting. But since then, we've sort of, you know, pulled back those expectations. And I think it was those expectations that got the market moving to higher yields um, and briefly got 10-year yields back into the 290s. And, and even more so, I think markets actually began to push the Fed on the possibility that it could actually go 75 basis points at a given meeting because we were pricing in more than 50 basis points of tightening at each of the next two meetings. And you know, where did that come from? Certainly, I think a number of Fed officials, regional bank presidents were asked about the likelihood of it. And while St. Louis Fed President Bullard said it didn't cause the end of the world in 1994, when you look deeper into his comments, both he 
um, San Francisco President Mary Daly, as well as um, President Mester, all sort of made the same sort of point here, which they don't necessarily want to surprise the markets and don't see the need for such a large incremental move right now. So while that did contribute to the to the large spike higher in yields last week um, and the flattening of the curve, we've actually taken that back again here. And now the market, after having priced in that two and you know three eighths term uh, neutral funds rate by 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 September or so has kind of pushed it back into kind of November. So I think that's part of the reason about why we've backed off the absolute highs in yields. And I think it's the same thing with the curve here as, as well, where the curve we had identified a couple of weeks ago that with all the volatility we've had over the course of the past six weeks, the very sharp flattening in March, which was related to the Fed's hawkish delivery at the meeting then, but also by some technical related hedging factors and the subsequent steepening, you know, it had left temporarily the yield curve pretty steep relative to um, how the markets were pricing the Fed at one point a couple of weeks ago. But now with the way the yield curve has flattened back, it seems like we're, we're, we're priced back in line. So as we stand here, um, you know, yield certainly call it 15 to 20 basis points off the highs that we saw last week. But with the markets pricing in, you know, closer to 50 point basis point hikes the next couple of meetings, um, 10-year yields looking pretty fairly valued after adjusting for how the market's pricing the Fed, inflation, and growth for the coming months. Um, it, it seems like we're right where we're supposed to be. And, um, you know, we're sitting below our year-end targets, but not that much below. So I think the next step is to see exactly at the meeting next week um, how the chair sort of conveys the the speed with which the the committee thinks it needs to get to neutral, and I think more importantly, you know how far beyond neutral it needs to go. And we won't get a new new round of summary of economic projections there. But at the peak late last week, markets were pricing in a, a peak funds rate of about three forty, um, which is certainly above that sort of two and three quarter to three percent level that Mike talked about. So that's that's what we'll be watching for. I guess amid all this curveball we've been seeing, you know, it, it seems like um, market depth has stayed fairly depressed. I mean, if we look at our, our basic met metrics on on this, um, it's it's been like this for for some time. Um, and I guess you know, on top of this, you know, when we look at sort of the shift in, in developed market currency levels, you know, it looks like the attractiveness of of dollar bonds for foreign investors has has shifted some. As well, I think you know, in some cases more more attractive, and in other cases less less so. How should we make sense of this? You know, in in uh, the uncertainty, should we read this as you know, demand remains good, but but the ability to sort of intermediate markets by dealers is is going to remain sort of depressed for the time being? So I think it's it's more the, the latter. That I think at a baseline, Alex, what we've established as you saw vol pick up as we've repriced the Fed over the last six months. But also, as the Fed stepped away from its large-scale purchases, that we're sort of adjusting to a baseline of lower liquidity, all is equal. And it just points back to the fact that the, the Treasury market's grown by 25% over the last two years plus since before COVID sort of hit the U.S. shores. But you haven't materially changed intermediation in the Treasury market. So you know, one of the structural factors that we've identified is that Treasury market liquidity is a lot less sort of resilient than it used to be. Um, and it means that every time vol picks up, we're much more exposed to a sort of move to, to lower liquidity. And we, we've seen that this year, and it's, it's why market depth is basically sitting at levels that we haven't seen since this time two years ago, just when we were coming out of the worst of the first wave of COVID. So I think it's more structural, more than anything else, related to the fact that the Treasury market's grown without growing intermediation. And certainly, um, the interagency working group, the G30 and others have identified 
potential fixes for the treasury market, which could make the treasury market more resilient in its liquidity, but really not a whole lot has been accomplished there. So I think we're kind of beginning to see sort of the ramifications of taking no actions. And I don't necessarily think it's the canary in the coal mine, just sort of the, the baseline of where we are, that we're operating in lower liquidity than we're used to because of these dynamics. And on the demand side, I think it's a bit of feeling out, to your point there, that you know when we wrote our outlook about five months ago, we identified that against the backdrop um, of a Fed on the move in which its balance sheet was going to shrink, that one of the structural buyers of treasuries over the course of the last two years where U.S. commercial banks were likely to fade away because deposit growth was going to slow aggressively, resulting in lower demand. And I think that's been, um, that slowing in demand has held, you know, driven part of the repricing. But also to your point, the fact that other DM central banks are likely to be on the move this year and it's making local currency government bonds a bit more attractive, it probably means against the backdrop of foreign official reserves, which aren't growing at a very rapid clip means that you know we need to sort of adjust the belly to levels in which more price sensitive buyers need to come in. So I think the baseline is liquidity is lower because of structural factors. We're here in a, in a treasury market where we need to find more price sensitive buyers after having less price sensitive buyers over the course of the last couple of years. And it means that we're sort of at this uneasy equilibrium where, where vol remains high and where, where, where liquidity remains low. And, and that tends to exaggerate moves in markets right now. And, and until we see the supervisors and sort of the interagency working group take greater action to address this. This is probably going to be the sort of standard by which we live. Definitely doesn't sound like we're going to do anything, see, see much happen with this uh, anytime in, in the near future anyway. Uh, but coming up in the near, near future, uh, we have the, the May Treasury refunding, and, and I guess it's still a little early to, to have any concrete thoughts on that. But um, what do you think, what are your sort of early thoughts and, and themes that maybe we should be looking out for from the Treasury? I think first that it's basically Christmas in May. We get the refunding announcement that morning and we get the Fed that afternoon. So there's going to be a lot for treasury market aficionados to digest. And I'm pretty excited about it. But beyond that, I, I think we we look for another round of modest cuts to treasury auction sizes, to coupon auction sizes, which was telegraphed back at the February refunding. And it's been in our forecast for some time. But I think importantly, what we're looking for, and, and this has not changed, is we're looking for more modest cuts than the aggressive cuts we saw at the November and at the February refunding. And in large part, those cuts were made because Treasury, its coupon schedule was more than adequate to meet its financing needs. And that's financing needs in the context of a deficit that's narrowing pretty sharply. So we still think there's more room to cut, but it should be smaller than, than the most recent magnitudes that we've seen in the last two refundings. But still with an additional focus on the, the less liquid on the run sectors, on the 20-year and the seven-year sector. So we should see disproportionately larger cuts right there. But if anything, I, I think after this, I'll be interested to see Treasury's take on the next path for changing its auction sizes. Because we're at the point now, where on the same day where Treasury, we think, announces one final rounds of cuts, that as Mike mentioned before, we will actually get the formal QT announcement. And if we're right, it's going to mean $420 billion in treasuries running off the Fed's balance sheet this year and $720 billion next year, and is going to incrementally increase the, the, the financing from non-Fed hands over the next year. And at some point, we'll actually course, uh, force the Treasury Department to actually reverse course and, and raise auction sizes. So we'll be looking for guidance about when that may happen. And, and you may ask why they would make cuts now to only make increases later on. But I think the important tale here is we know that you know, T-bills are in short supply on a relative basis and remain relatively scarce in their valuations. 
and that the treasury in, in an effort to make sure that the front end is functioning properly will need to cut auction sizes one more time to make sure that it can have an ample amount of T-bill supply um, to sort of address the concerns about what's happening at the front end. So those, those would be the primary things I'm looking for. One more cut then the indication about when it may need to reverse course and actually increase auction sizes, as well as the thoughts on T-bills. And then perhaps, I mean, it's very possible that the Treasury explores a bit more what you just asked about, the liquidity conditions here and, and how that's sort of the lack of intermediation is, is driving more volatility in the Treasury market. Yeah, it becomes its own issue. I think we had recently taken a look at uh, some, some Treasury data, and I think we're down to the top quartile of dealers doing something like just over half of the volume, um, it seems like. So... Anyway, Jay, thanks a lot for, for that. I think um, inflation's also been a huge story. So we want to bring Phoebe in at this point and talk a little bit about um, the repricing of, of Fed expectations and what that's done to the relationship between nominal yields and, and break-evens. Um, so Phoebe, what, what do you see happening in that space? Yeah, I think the outperformance of, of tips in the recent environment has been somewhat surprising. Um, you know, normally a shift towards tighter Fed policy should drive that beta between real and nominal yields above historical averages. That's certainly what we saw at the start of the year before Russia's invasion into Ukraine. Um, we saw real yields rising faster than nominal yields, break-evens narrowing at that point. Um, but here we are the last few weeks even with Fed tightening expectations moving sharply higher, break-evens have really kept up with the move. Um, so, you know, we, here this morning as we're recording this, we're seeing some pullback in break-evens, but still the five-year sector is close to all-time wides. Um, the 10-year sector is pretty much at its widest level since 1997. Um, and, you know, these moves are occurring not only against a hawkish Fed backdrop, but um, we've also seen the monthly gain in core CPI moderating now for the last couple of months. Um, we also see some high-frequency demand statistics declining, specifically you know, TIPS ETF flows. Um, so you could argue we should be seeing a, a real turn here in break-evens. Um, but at the same time, there's still clearly a lot of uncertainty around the inflation trajectory. Um, and you know, in our own view, we think we could see sequential core CPI gains actually firming before they start moderating in a more sustained way. Um, that's coming from not only the, the commodity supply shocks from the Russia-Ukraine war, um, but also the latest COVID lockdowns in China. Um, both of these things are, are, are certainly impacting CPI. Um, higher energy prices really drove headline um, sharply higher in March. Um, and, you know, these developments shouldn't really affect the ongoing inflation trend, but they are compounding the broader, more persistent inflation pressures that Mike talked about earlier, um, coming from tight labor markets and, and faster wage growth. So, you know, all this really suggests inflation is likely to stay high over the very near term. Um, and in that sense, it's not too surprising that inflation risk premium has, has continued to rise. Uh, over the medium term, you know, we think break-even should narrow over the coming quarters, but I think it's, it's at this point too early to, to call the turn and try to fade the move here. So what do you think will be the catalyst for the turnaround break-evens? Yeah, so I think we need to see evidence that inflation really is starting to moderate. Um, you know, in terms of year-ago rates of inflation, March was probably the peak, just given base effects from uh, the high readings last spring. But I think focus is really going to be on sequential increases. And as I mentioned, we're probably not past the peak there. Um, I think that should really depend on whether supply chain disruptions are normalizing or at least not getting worse. 
Um, and I think that's really where the focus is going to be. Used cars, I think, is still an interesting segment to watch. Um, we have seen used car prices declining in each of the last two months. Uh, they're still up more than 35% over a year ago. And so the eventual normalization of supply chain disruptions in the auto sector should drive a pretty large decline in, in the core inflation rate when we get it. Um, but we think that the next move in, in car price is probably going to be up and not down. Um, for a few reasons. So our auto analysts have highlighted that this recent softening in used vehicle prices has been driven in part by a rebuilding of new vehicle inventories. Um, but with the, the war in Ukraine and China port cities being shut down, recent production estimates have actually been revised lower. Um, and then there's also some concerning data out of Asia that's suggesting worsening bottlenecks. Um, you know, on that front, I think it's it's worth watching a wide range of indicators on supply chain developments, um, not just sort of broad freight costs and supplier delivery times, um, but sort of a, a broader swath of economic data. And when we look at sort of those indicators, um, we do think that the monthly core CPI gains could move higher next month. Um, so if that's the case, I think it'll be difficult for break-evens to narrow more materially really over the near term here. Um, so, you know, again, broadly, we, we stay neutral break-evens for now. I think it's, it's still too early to call the turn, but um, over the medium term, once we get more evidence that inflation is, is starting to moderate and supply chain pressures are easing, um, we do look for, for break-evens to narrow. What's market depth been like in tips? So unfortunately, we don't really have a clean measure of market depth. Um, on the tip side, we do try to estimate it just looking at um, you know, volumes of tips compared to the volatility that we've seen. And just using that sort of proxy, market depth has come down. Um, I think you know, liquidity is still pretty impaired in this market. Uh, alongside the broader treasury market. So um, I think, you know, liquidity could certainly be contributing to the moves we've seen. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's also sort of a lack of transparency into uh, general demand as well. Uh, you know, I mentioned the high frequency um, statistics just coming from TIPS ETF flows, and we saw um, recent outflows there. But sort of anecdotally, it seems like um, we are seeing demand for the product from sort of a broader investor base, um, you know, more demand coming from um, European investors recently, even further out along the curve. Um, and, you know, I think just given the very strong carry profile for tips, you know, next month, um, carry on tips will be the highest on record. And so that should, in, in general, I think, drive continued support for the product, at least over the coming weeks. So that's all for this episode of At Any Rate. Stay tuned for more episodes of it At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2022, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on April 25th, 2022.